Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 397. Thank you for tuning in, guys. I hope you're well. I hope you enjoyed last week's double episodes, Adam Buxton and Asim Chowdhury. And I'm sure you already know, but it's good news that we've got double episodes this week as well. And we're kicking it off with a wonderful chat with Nihal Arthur Nika. I've known Nihal, Nihal a while and it's been high time he comes on the podcast, to be completely honest. I took my time on that. Um, but it was great to sit down and have a chat. Obviously, we talk about a lot of the world that's going on at the moment. Nihal has a blooming radio show where he's discussing a lot of, of recent events, often hearing from the public. So COVID, everything else seems very relevant at the moment. But we also talk about something I was really excited to talk about, his, his history in music. His history as a rapper, his history as a promoter, spending time with most deaf and loads of amazing people, Method Man and Red Man. There's some amazing stuff in here and you're going to absolutely adore it. So um, I won't ramble on too much more. I will tell you that Friday's episode is with the amazing Renee Richardson. I've known Renee a while as well. She's a producer of podcasts. And l- last year, she she made some big waves um, that kind of rippled internationally and have made permanent, hopefully, positive change in all of audio. So if this is your first time tuning in, previous guests, if you're a radio head as such, as, as Zane Lowe was one of the first guests ever, um, Fern Cotton, Edith Bowman, Huey Morgan, Hugh Stevens... Man, John Kennedy, I've had loads of uh, Tom Robinson, not Tommy Robinson, Tom, the legend Tom Robinson. I've had loads of excellent uh, radio people over the years. Obviously, if you want to buy merch, all sorts of good stuff over at speechdevelopmentrecords.com. If you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash scroobiuspip. Um, it's only like a dollar or two dollars or whatever the minimum amount that you're allowed to make it is. Um, and we sometimes do Zoom calls or Z- Zoom hangouts. Um, but in general, it's just there if you want to chip in. If you're getting, if you're enjoying all these like two podcasts a week at the moment and all the other stuff in these weird times and you want to chip some money towards me and the Distraction Pieces team, then you can do that, but you don't have to. Anyway, this is episode 368 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the wonderful Nihal. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. Right, let's begin. I'm here with Nihal Arfanaika. How are you, man? I'm good, man. It's so good to see you. It's been so a while, isn't it? It has been a while. It has been a while, but we go back a while. So I guess that you just have to just do it where you can, especially when one of us is living in Vancouver and the <laughs> yeah. other one is in the northwest <laughs> of England and we're living through a pandemic. So no yeah. one's seen anyone really, are they? Yeah, the pandemic is the weird part. How are you in all of it? You've, you've, I mean, we'll talk about it a bit, I think, because. I really think you've given some really powerful and emotional kind of speeches as such on on the subject, on the way the government and the nation are approaching it. So how are you, like, before we get into any of that, how are you personally? Are you feeling okay, <laughs> you know? I think it's it's difficult to complain when you're in such a blessed position. You and I are working. Yeah. We've got money coming in. We're doing okay. So you have to complain relative to how well you're doing i'm not in a flat on the 15th floor with no garden with kids that i'm having to homeschool with poor internet i'm not in any of that so you know you're slightly reticent as you and i in positions that we are to really complain um but we can't deny how we feel about the position that all of us are in i think for me my wife and i are very sociable creatures you know our lives like yours has been built around live music gigs, plays, being out and about, mingling. I want people. I'm a hugger. I like people. Yeah. And the fact that I can't do any of that was at first kind of odd, but I could live with it because I thought it was going to be a couple of months. 
and then it, it becomes it then becomes oppressive mm. and it feels as though it's not only oppressive but in some ways claustrophobic you know i our worlds are used to being expanded yeah. constantly because we're blessed to be in the jobs that we are where we are constantly exposed to new experiences if we're lucky enough different countries different cultures and now suddenly i'm in like a 5 mile radius yeah right and that's my world yeah and that with all the blessings that we have that feels oppressive you know really does i think i'm 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 big on everyone accepting that everything is is relative do you know what I mean? I think there's a big thing, particularly with mental health, there's a big thing of kind of almost not allowing yourself to accept that yes. you're struggling because other people have yes. got it worse. Yeah, they have, yes. sure, but but your worst is still your worst or your bad day is still your bad day. So yes. I think we're seeing that an awful lot in this. And I, mate, because I'm in another country, I have people reach out all the time and every message I'm saying, well, it's this and this, but... You know, there's other people who've got it worse. So I do it myself as well. I'm saying, you know, yeah. it could be worse. It's this and all this. But I think we do need to accept that we're allowed to be st- st- struggling in in a global pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, how, 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 weird, how weird to think that we might be having some issues or, or not taking it as well as we'd, yeah, we'd it's want. True. It's know? true. I mean, I think that part of me also is as a BBC presenter. Yes, you don't you don't really want to be because you just know that there'll be certain people who'll jump all over you yeah if you are complaining yeah. right and you know i have to acknowledge i think it's, it's also important you're absolutely right that depression isn't a chart position yeah right it isn't like oh well you know yeah okay you're depressed but you're coming in at number 13 at number eight there's someone who's lost <laughs> even more than you've done like it yeah. isn't a chart position yeah. right yeah so, but I think that the only things I have to complain about are largely, well, it was weird. I was going to say they're largely add-ons to my life, but I've discovered that so many things perhaps I thought of as an add-on to my life are integral to my happiness. Yeah. And that's yeah. what this has done. You know, I need live music. It's not something that is just something that I can just do or do without. I need it in my life. Yeah. You know? I, I completely f- feel you on that. I used to always go down the route that often people say of of the cinema is is escapism. It's escaping from the world. And then years ago I realized, no, it's it's adding to my it's not escaping from my life. It's a key part of my life. And that's exactly the same there. It, a, a lot of these things that we see as a luxury or or as I said escapism taking us away from our, our normal life. No, no, that they, they are our life. There is as important a part. You don't have to just think of your normal life as just the bad things. Again, it's a very British thing, yes. the way we've built our society that, you know, any job that you enjoy is seen as worthless. Like we see it all the time with Twitch and YouTubers. We see everyone go, you get paid for that. That's work, is it? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, what yeah. because they enjoy it. How weird yes. that we feel that the only yeah. jobs that have value are jobs that you hate. And we see it as well with nurses and people who do things where they're helping and get a potentially along with the fucking exhaustion get a feeling of fulfillment we go well you know let's not pay them as much because they're getting fulfilled they're getting fulfillment in there whereas all the office jobs it's like let's pay more and more and more because we hate it So, so you know it's it's a weird a weird society that we've built that is only part only the miserable parts are your life. Yes. Every, everything yeah. else is a bonus. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, I mean, culture, as someone like yourself who'd been in the arts for many, many years, it was always seen by so many people in positions of power, uh, political power, as an add-on. Yeah. You know, like the DCMS, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, is like the Ministry of Fun. Mm. Yeah. But culture is an integral part of not just how we define ourselves, but how we find joy yeah or answer questions about the world that we live in or yeah. indeed ask questions in a deep way through poetry or through theater or through dance through music it's just a vital part and worth billions of pounds to our economy if you want to make it just about the money so i hope that one of these things is that we understand and value it more yeah it's been a really interesting one how the arts 
were so dismissed at the start of this pandemic and it took the raw numbers of the the billions that they bring into our economy to make people respect them and it's it's a damning indictment that we value oh again it's it's how we've judged countries for years we judge how a country's doing based on how their economy is hmm. gdp yeah. rather than how happy the individuals are or how how yeah, yeah, how yeah. fulfilled or any or how artistic their artistic output and it's it's a weird one because as i said we've seen that in the pandemic the complete lack of support of the arts particularly with theaters and it's i mean it's 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 one to bring things um obviously we're going to uh, uh, jump around a lot but the the music video f- for my song you will see me with dan lasak was all shot at the theater in harlow which i'm sure you're very f- familiar with and that was the be- playhouse and yeah. and yeah and that was because a mate of mine had worked there for years and again people think of the arts as the lead in a film or or the front man of a band and don't think about all the people in the background that are as hardworking and working class as anyone else who's dismissing the arts as a luxury. And yeah, places like the Playhouse are built on that. It's it, yes, it, it's yeah. providing job and experiences and, and for people to climb up and, and yeah, contribute in those ways. Yeah, and there's so many of those jobs that are now excluded from any help. Yeah. You know, tour managers and lighting and sound, whether it be front of house or uh, monitor sound and guitar texts. And I mean, that's just the music industry. Yeah. Then get into theatre and get into dance and get into the creative arts, different ways. And it is, you know, I just, I mean, I was talking to someone who's a conductor and he was saying that a cellist that he knew couldn't afford their rent and was living in a van until they were told it was illegal to do that. And then they had to try and find somewhere to live. Now these are people who've devoted their lives to learning to play music to give pleasure to hundreds, if not thousands of people. It's a really, and look again, I guess my, I kind of my BBC default mode is there are lots of people in very difficult positions across different industries. There are without a doubt, the whole of the hospitality industry, wedding planners and, venues and then you look at pubs and it's just i mean you you can't it's hard to talk about it because it's it's so overwhelming yeah what's happening to people that it just has to end and it and will I, end and i think we are all drawn to our specific industry or area like again i, I saw so many of my mates posting quite rightfully to support the the, the live music industry I didn't see half as many posting about the the, the strikes that British Gas are, are currently going through, or the or the gas workers are, are currently going through to improve their their wages and conditions and and hours and all that kind of thing. So it is weird, but again, I think it's completely natural because it's the things that we're passionate about. It's the things that affect us directly that 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 we're going to notice first. And as you say, there is such an overwhelming amount of things to be complaining about or as such or shouting about at the moment that you can't yes. cover all of it. Have, have you felt kind of a responsibility as someone with a public platform and a public voice? Cause there's, there seems to be always a lot of really loud negative public voices and we won't n- name them all. And I mean, I've talked on the podcast before about how in the pandemic, some of them have tried to switch sides and become the good guys and all this kind of thing. It's a bizarre world, but I've always enjoyed, as I said, you always have represented to me a calm and rational voice and, and, and platform. Have you felt a responsibility in that? Or has that just felt natural that, look, I've got a radio show where I'm talking. How am I not going to talk about this and express this, you know? Yeah, well, I have a responsibility as a BBC broadcaster to broadcast facts Mm. over opinions yeah and what we've found is that people somehow value or some people have valued opinions more than facts or indeed tried to manipulate facts to back up their own spurious arguments and for me i'm trying to be a pragmatist not dogmatist like i'm not interested in dogma Mm -hmm. or necessarily idealism what i'm interested in 
is to try and get to the heart of the matter as quickly as possible and try and understand it and then say, well, yeah, you can absolutely think that Steve on your Facebook page knows more than Professor Chris Whitty, but you're wrong, yeah. right? You're just wrong. Yeah. Okay, It's not a case of we can debate this. Steve on your Facebook page does not know more. Yeah. I mean, I tweeted the qualifications that Professor Chris Whitty has from the government's website, just so people could understand that these aren't people making arbitrary decisions based on a whim, based on they feel like it, based on they got up in the morning. They're trying to crunch the data. Now, where the politics becomes involved is a different issue, right? Mm. And then it's down to a mixture of that. And I think you can argue that the politics doesn't always follow the science, even though the politicians, some of them around the world, will try and say that they are following the science. Yeah. Their own ideology. You only have to look at what's happened in Brazil, for instance, where they've run out of oxygen. You know, Bolsonaro, what he has done in Brazil is many people believe to be just a shocking job. And then you look at what Dr. Fauci has been saying in America about trying to get the Trump administration to understand the scale of the issue. Yeah. And it was ideology. It was politics that stopped Dr. Fauci's message getting through. And now he's working with an administration in um, President Biden's administration that understands that the science is important. There are 400,000 plus deaths. There will be in the week that we're talking about in late January, probably 100,000 deaths will be announced this week Mm. in the UK. So I feel a responsibility to shut out the noise I'm not trying to monetize division, which is what I see so many of these people trying to do for shares, for likes, and hoping that they can get on some kind of radio station and vomit out their drivel. I'm not trying to do that. You know, I have a responsibility to say, okay, when someone texted in, and I put this on my Instagram, when someone texted in to our show and was like, look, it's you liberal media. These old people, they're going to die anyway. I just found that, a terrible thing to say. It's unbelievable, right? About a section of your society that, you know what, because I want to go down the pub and go to a cinema, just imprison old people in buildings, right? Yeah. Just imprison them there until we all get over this. Yeah, but for how long? The thing is, and David Bedil, the British comedian, said this with regards to conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are there to make idiots feel like intellectuals, yeah, right? Is, is, a, is a quite a rude and harsh way of saying it. But ultimately, the world is complicated. And whoever comes along and tells you there are simple solutions to these complicated issues is a snake oil salesman. Yeah. And you have to ignore them. That's what they are. They're either a snake oil salesman or they are willfully misleading you to further their own monetary gain. Right. Yeah. And we've seen his, I, I put this tweet out a little while ago, Pip, where I just went, how do you think history will judge those people who were yeah. COVID deniers and anti-vaxxers? How will history judge those people? Because they, they think that this is part of the culture war, but it isn't part of the culture war. Yeah. It just isn't. I've got a real short fuse with, and have had a short fuse with, with conspiracy theories for a long while, because so they started off feeling like a bit of fun but the growing the damage is is endless so it's oh. it's 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 really but it it is responsible for a lot of what we're going through now cuz the people who would have you know go back to your jfk conspiracy theories or whatever else that's great fun that was a right laugh we'll yeah. look at this we'll see yeah. what the options are yeah. but that grows and grows and grows and it brings in things like fake news being a, a term that is is used now. It means that everything can be d- denied because yes, BBC, l- liberal agenda, doctors, all this kind of thing, all owned by some big power, and it's horrendous because it means that we can't present valid arguments and valid explanations because there's always the choice of going f- fake news, as you say. You don't. It doesn't matter how many, how much a qualification that you show of this fact of the people backing it, 
th- those who want to believe what and, and again it is it's confirmation bias it's the internet has allowed us to find the the theory that backs up how we want to live our life it backs up the selfish choice that we want to make that week and again it 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 goes endless. I, I was, I was, de- it does, I was yeah. kind of discussing it with someone online and I was saying the rare th- th- thing is that we're in a time where normally you can say, oh, you think another government would have done better? And and it's kind of a, a, a non, an unbeatable argument because it's theory. But yeah. we're in a, w- yeah. a rare time where we can compare because this is global. Other yes. governments have done better. So, so we can look at, at New Zealand. That's interesting. Yes, yes. And see the amazing job that they have done because they went into a quick and strict lockdown straight away. It was a shorter period than we're going through and it was dealt with. People will then argue, yeah, New Zealand has a similar culture. It's an island, but it's more spaced out. All right, well, then you look at, at Malaysia, which is very much on top of themselves and they've just had a huge panic because they recently um, exceeded... 550 deaths total over the whole pandemic. Do you know how many died in Taiwan? Seven. So we can look at these countries that you can compare on numerous ways, either on their culture or on their how packed in they are, and we can see that it could have been done better. So it's just undeniable. People will try to argue and argue, but there's so many. It's a rare time where, again, because people who hate Corbyn or hate Labour or whomever else. And, you know, I'm not argue, I'm not going to argue on anyone's favour there. They will always be saying, yeah, but the other lot would have done worse. So like, no, but we can prove that this could have been done yes. better. You can't, Brothers. it's undeniable This in this instance. I think at the moment we're too close to it, but yeah. the, the numbers don't lie. I mean, the numbers just don't lie about how many deaths we've had in yeah. the UK compared to other countries in Europe. And... You know, people will have to be, there will have to be, I'm sure at some point in the future, public inquiries, questions will have to be asked about how this was handled. Now, yes, of course, you can give people the benefit of hindsight, which is always 2020. And as Boris Johnson said to the Labour leader, you're over, over there sniping from the sides when we're getting on with it. And there is justification to say that, of course. It's mm-hmm. much easier to snipe from the sides than it is to actually do the job. But that doesn't mean that you absolve yourself from a forensic analysis of yeah. just how well did you do that job, where there were options. I mean, we in the UK had our first coronavirus case. It was a Japanese, uh, sorry, not Japanese, my apologies. There were Chinese, that's right in York on January the 20th. We didn't lock down until March, right? Mm. But yet the first case. Now, when we had our first case of uh, of these Chinese nationals, they'd already locked down Wuhan. So they were already admitting in China by the 20th of January that there were human-to-human transmission yeah. of this virus. Yeah, And then, of course, quite recently the Home Secretary in the UK, Priti Patel, has said this, is that that she suggested that we should close all our airports, right, uh, in March. But then even then it was too late. I mean, Kerala, the southern state of India, which is a, tens of millions of people live in Kerala, they screened people coming from Wuhan in December of 2019. They were wow. immediately on it. They were just yeah. like, okay, this there's something. Good. But then Taiwan... And Kerala had had experience of mass outbreaks before, right, of different viruses. So they already had a machine in place to be able to deal with it, you know. But this will be poured over for decades to come about who did what, when, where, who did it well and who did it badly. The question is almost is not that because we can't do anything about that anymore. Yeah. But what next? You know, yeah. how do we rebuild? How do we ensure that our societies don't fall apart again? Because you cannot make the assumption that the UK or Canada is a country whose structures are so robust that they can survive anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people in Syria 10 years ago never thought what would happen to Syria has happened to Syria. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You can't take it for granted. Look at America 
which in just four years got to the stage where there was an armed insurrection yeah. in the capital, right? Yeah. I mean, that's in just four years, that's all it took. But also, interestingly, I saw the other day that after the end of the First World War, there was a, a, a voice in Germany that blamed Jewish people for the loss of the First World War, right? So that right. voice yeah. grew louder and louder and louder. But it took over a decade for that to get to the situation where it changed the nature of the state. So one of the questions that was being asked was, what will we really know about Trumpism, for instance? You know, the yeah. ramifications of nationalism and white supremacism, where is that going to end? Yeah. You know, we can't just assume that because President Trump is no longer president, that the seeds that he planted in the ground, some would argue the seeds that he planted in the ground, won't flourish in 10 years' time. Yeah. That won't become this kind of horrible forest of, of hatred and division. You just don't really know. Completely. And it's 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 often the way. It's the, the, the thing that people make the mistake of, of thinking in recent times is that this right-leaning rhetoric, again, I don't want to start saying right-wing or whatever else because it starts to be attacking and and yeah, you could be right wing devices it's fine to be right wing yeah. it's yeah. it's being far right wing yeah. i think and it's and being far left wing yeah. they're both they're both extremes where weirdly totalitarianism is on both sides of that yeah but it's it's, it's that mistake that people seem to think that it's a load of old boys and and you know it'll all move on what we've seen with this recent run is the youth being engaged and very much often isolated and 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 aimless youth. But yeah, you don't know where that will go in the long run. One of the things I found absolutely amazing in all of this is how big a piece Trump being removed from Twitter was. Like how huge an impact that had and how it felt so, so different. Did you agree with it? Did you agree with him being removed? I did, yeah. I did because because I, I, it's it's a business. It's not it's not a human right. Twitter isn't a yeah. human right. Um, it's yeah, ridiculous. Right. I felt exactly yeah. the same when people were doing. There was huge online uh, petitions to stop Kanye headlining Glastonbury. It's like you you can't petition a private business from doing what they want to do. It's not it's not a public service. Glastonbury isn't a public service. You can petition our government because they're our public servants. There's numerous other things, but you, like you couldn't do a petition to choose what I have for dinner tonight. You know, even if there's a million people vote, the same thing. I'm going to have what I want. There's no power in that. And it's it's a similar thing there. I don't think it's a, a loss of um, a freedom of speech because, again, it's it's that it's just another platform what a lot of people missed in that because again i i explained this to a few people on my facebook page and they genuinely again as 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 we've said our need is to jump in and have an opinion without necessarily educating ourselves on it loads of people were saying oh he's gone because the snowflakes on the left were offended by what he says that's not why he went he went because there was an armed mob outside the Capitol building where Mike Pence, a, a right, you know, a Republican was, and he tweeted to say that he's a traitor. And that crowd started to make nooses and chant, give us Mike Pence and hang Mike Pence. Um, that was therefore seen as genuinely the, the, the dangerous. So a lot of the, I believe the initial email that went through that, started the snowball of having him removed from Twitter was from a Republican because they were seeing this as, no, this is the danger. This is one of our guys. There's now a mob trying outside the building he's hiding in, trying to hang him because of a tweet. So that's a completely valid reason to remove someone. It's not that their opinions are too out there or they're offending the, the sensitive left. It's like, no, that's incitement to a lynching literally yes yes. it's insanity absolutely yeah absolutely they completely miss the point if they think it's it's an attack on conservatives yeah it's not an attack on conservatives it's an attack on one of the most powerful people on planet earth so well i guess the most powerful person essentially he has been charged with impeachment of course for a second time of incitement to riot that's what he's being charged with so it's going to be 
very difficult for him to, well, it's not going to be that difficult because I think they require 17 Republicans to vote with the Democrats. And I'm not sure they'll find 17 Republicans to do that. I feel like, and this isn't bias against President Trump, but it was exhausting. You know, those four years, whether I think you're a Trump supporter or not, were just exhausting. Yeah, true. You know, it's just nice to get back to a government which is about governing. Yeah. Not necessarily just constantly just throwing out mind burps, which is what it seemed to be most of the time, and just creating an atmosphere that wasn't inclusive. Yeah. It just simply wasn't. And again, uh, not being either pro-Democrat or pro-Republican, the facts are all there. The tweets are all there. I don't think there are many people who could argue on either side that President Trump was a force for unity in America. Right. Mm. I don't don't know where you would find the evidence to suggest that he was. I mean, feel free for anyone listening to this podcast to um, get at me directly and say, here's the evidence where President Trump made America a more unified place. I I just haven't seen that evidence or data. And again, I think the, the, the key part there as well is saying this isn't coming from a position of bias either because people, uh, uh, when Trump won, everyone was like, yeah, yeah, but Hillary is this and Hillary is that. It's like, whoa, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't back in Hillary. I don't support Hillary. I just think Trump is worse. And similarly here, I think Biden and, and Harris are a great improvement on Trump. I don't think they're the solution. I think there's a lot of quite right excitement about the first black female vice president but you know the some of the stuff that Kamala Harris has done within the prison system and within the police forces is really worrying and is terrible so i don't think it's this simple all oh, the good guys are in it's like no that maniac is gone <laughs> now let's deal yeah. with the problem at hand as as such but let's i mean let's move on on from all of this i don't want to uh, we've not caught up in yeah. ages i want to have some some positivity in here as well you mentioned that we go way back and one of my favorite ever radio slots was on your show when you were on Radio 1 and I was on to review the singles of the week and I was dead nervous because I was like, I'm not the Radio 1 daytime demographic, but I'm also a polite person, but I also like to be honest. So I was like, this is going to be rough because I'm going to want to, I'm not going to give a lot of these singles a high score, but I don't want to be a dick either because I've been on the other end of that as a musician when someone is just for fun sniping at you. But the beautiful part was I was on with Greg James and a music journalist whose name has escaped me, but the music journalist, I think the highest score he gave any single was about two or three out of ten, which made me feel so much better for my fives and six and sevens. But the thing that I adored, and it was genuinely eye-opening, was Greg James gave almost all of them eight or nine or ten, because he genuinely loved them. And that was a weird eye-opener for me because in the past I'd known one or two DJs who had playlists that they had to play and weren't necessarily into the songs. But then realising, meeting Greg and seeing that, no, he just loves this and that's absolutely fine. And, And Hugh Stevens is one that I've always loved as well, that he's just got a really broad taste so when he's on daytime and he's playing all this pop stuff that i'm listening to going at that point again it's obviously the playlist and demographics will change i'm listening going god this is awful he genuinely loves it so it was being on there with greg was one of my favorite things because there was a particular song i can't remember what it was that this guy gave 0.2 out of 10 i'd given (laughs) four out of 10 and then it went to greg and you handed it over to it this is awkward because this is my record of the week and i've I've got them to, to record a special version with my name on. So it's my favourite song at the moment. I've given it 10. So it's just such a, such That's a beautiful moment. Oh, my God, that is amazing. That's an interesting <laughs> thing about music criticism, isn't it? Is that what's right and wrong in that? Right? Yeah. It's not like maths, no. right? It is, it is, I'm just not feeling that track. Now, for you personally, if you haven't made an emotional connection with a song then for you it's failed. Yeah. But to say it has failed generally yeah. is a difficult thing to say. Completely. Right. It's a difficult thing to say because it's so obviously subjective. I mean, music has been a such a saviour for me. I've been listening to Salt. I, I just came across just through a playlist. So I just put in, I said, Alexa, 
play. Oh, so I shouldn't say that, should I? Because now all the machines in someone's house will go off and listen to our podcast. <laughs> but um, when I when I said that name, um, and I said play some Fortet, right? Because yeah. I hadn't listened to Fortet in a while. Good old Kieran, and it played a remix that Fortet had done of a bicep track called Opal, right. and it was so good that I just listened to it ten times in a row. I tweeted about it. It's two years old. Yeah. But it just, I just lost myself in my kitchen when I was cooking on Saturday. I made lunch and I made dinner. And while I was doing it, that was my soundtrack, eight minute long song. I just wanted to be in a rave again. Yeah. And I was just transformed there. But criticizing music, being a music critic, I mean, it's tough, right? Being a music journalist. It's, it's nonsense as well, with the, the greatest respect. Because as you said, it's completely <laughs> individual taste. I kind of, yes. my, my point has always been like, I, I've argued with people on my social media about this before with films or anything if anyone says oh that film's shit i'll be like well, no even even if i didn't enjoy it it's, like, it's not to your taste you didn't enjoy it but s- someone did i remember when i worked in record stores for years and years a mate of mine ross lawson he he described it was when james Blunt and dido had the two biggest albums in the country and <laughs> and, and he described it as music for people who aren't into music and that's that sounds like an insult or an attack but i think it's kind of true because it made me realize there's there's yeah i do because and and again i i really enjoyed the blunt album (laughs) and i enjoyed that but i think there's there's a wider thing where when like you, you you and i you've grown up with music being such an important part of your life it's hard to imagine that there's people who it isn't Yes. You know, what I mean, and ju- and ju- just want some music that sounds good, and they've heard it on the radio a lot, and things things like that. And I think that's a perfectly valid j- j- genre of music. Your your musos and, <laughs> and and music nerds could pick it apart and say it's basic, it's vanilla, it's this or that. And that isn't. I'm not specifically talking about Dido and James Blunt anymore. I mean that that g- general area, but that's perfectly okay. You know, those people aren't going to enjoy yes, yes. the late MF Doom. They, they may <laughs> no, have heard of him passing no. and go, oh, I'll pop some MF yes. Doom on. And they're going to go, I don't get what's happening here. Why is it so yes. complex? I think, I think. Why, why problem, is this hard uh, to listen to? I should just enjoy it immediately. <laughs> yeah, but the problem I kind of slightly find with this is that being a hip hop head from back in the days, I couldn't stand that kind of backpacker hip hop that said that only. You know, and I worked for Raucous, so yeah. I was their publicist. So, oh, if it's, you know, it, unless it's Black Star, I'm not interested in, in what Snoop and all that's doing and that kind of snobbery. And and in, the indie guitar scene was the worst for that. It was like yeah. terrible. Yeah. And I remember um, a former editor of The Face magazine telling me, you know, the problem that music journalism has in the UK is that it tells you that this is the coolest thing in the world. And then when you start liking it, it tells you you're a loser for liking it because we've moved on to the next thing, right? Really and he said the, fundament, and the fundamental problem with that was that you were slowly but surely disconnecting yourself from your audience because the more snobby you got, yeah. the more they felt insulted by you. Yeah. And, and, and I've never forgot that conversation I had with him. He's a really smart guy. I think he lives in San Francisco now. Yeah. And, um, I just thought, yes, you're right. You know, and this was pre the internet. He told me this. So this was yeah. pre social media, pre pitchfork, so yeah, pre pre Spotify uh, playlist choosing things for you. But it just made total sense. It was almost as if there was this. It's kind of similar to how, whenever a thousand years ago, whatever. My history is not good at this point. People didn't want the the Bible translated out of Latin into English, right? We don't want that because we want to hold on to the precious things. So we as music journalists, we hold on to the precious things. We tell you what to like. How dare you have your own opinion? And when we choose and when we tell you that that stuff is shit, right, you're going to have to move on from it. And we tell you it's shit and we tell you you're a loser for liking it. But then you turn around and go, well, wait a minute. You put them on the cover two months ago and said they were the best thing in the UK. And you go, well, yeah, but not now. And now yeah. you're a loser for life. But then, then, guys, guys, oh, we've got you covered. We've invented this phrase, guilty pleasure. So now yes. you can enjoy the shit. Now yes, you can enjoy yes. the shit and it's okay. It's, yes. like, it's, it's ridiculous. Yes, but that's I, true. I think rap's the best example of that because particularly I, I, I was that kid. I was that raucous listening 
backpack rap guy who was had all, had all the pretension. Um, and there'll be people now who are going to be annoyed by this, but I, there would always be the debate in the 90s kind of thing of what's the difference between hip-hop and rap? Uh, where's right. the difference? What's the line? And I've come to realise oh, the difference is the pretension of the listener. They're the same thing. It's just you want to be... Um, I'm a hip hop. I'm not into rap. I'm not into rap. I'm into hip hop. It's, it's the same yeah. thing, man. It's all the same. And Lil Wayne is as valid as most deaf yeah, to me. I've I got agree. as much pleasure I out of them. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with you. We liked we liked thug music. I liked yeah. thug music. You know, from the, the interesting thing because I'm just, I so love grime and drill. Is yeah. because it's not a million miles away from how hard. British hip hop has always been. Yeah. British hip hop hasn't historically, from what I remember of it, been loyal Kana. It's been much more the kind of Skepta, because if you think about Hijack and these kind of groups, Son of Noise, these kind of groups from back in the days, they were hard. Like the beats yeah. were hard, the breaks were hard. It was very, you know, Britain wasn't very good at making smooth kind of yeah. rap music. It, no, it made hard. And then, of course, that went into Garage and junglist, Jungle MCs and all of that that came out of it. I, th- I think you're completely right because anyone who tried to make Smooth would be doing it in an American accent or an yes. American style. So the, the, there wasn't a British equivalent, really, no. until, until Garage went kind of in that direction a bit that yes. had the smoothness and things like that. But other yeah, than that, yeah. it was. You're completely right. It was if you if you're noticeably British, it's going to be hard because that accent so, doesn't translate to the smoothness. It's, it's, it's different, it's, but whereas people like Loyal Khan do it beautifully now, yeah, right? They're just fantastic at it now. He's an amazing lyricist. Look, I'm going to say something controversial for a hip-hop guy of my age is that I was never into Tribe. Really? Right? I was just, yeah, right? Which I know a lot of people yeah. were just like... <gasps> But I just, I was, I just thought that stuff was weak. Like I was into Gangstar, <laughs> yeah. right? Even Jazzmatazz by Guru, I was into. But I just would tribe. It just left me feeling like, okay, like you're doing a, it's clever, and there's all these kind of abstract samples on it. But no, I want to go and listen to. I'm going to go. Ramesh Ranganathan, I as a name drop, we're, we're messaging each other today about Tim Dog. Yeah. Right, fuck we did Compton. a track called "Fuck Compton," right? <laughs> Which, if you listen to today, is just one some of the worst school playground lyrics you'll ever hear. But at the time, I was all over the track. And, and what's even more fun is is that if you dig deeper into Tim Dog, you'll hear a lot of those same schoolboy rhymes in numerous tracks, just <laughs> using yes, his but- the same rap over and over again. But yeah. Oh, just, I mean, but but I he, agree. Ramesh, Ramesh admitted to me that he wrote into Hip Hop Connection, which is what I was writing for at the time, to basically say the magazine was shit or something because it rated <laughs> it rated Dr. Dre's The Chronic higher than Tim Dog's album. Now, he's probably the only man in history that's actually gone, now nah, Tim Dog album's better than the chronic by dr dre like i mean come on i mean and i love ron for that because he just and i get it because i was into that i was properly into east coast hip-hop yeah like hardcore biggie like if it came to biggie and tupac i was biggie all day long 24 hours a day seven days a week i wasn't into tupac at all which is another controversial thing for an asian to say because asians were obsessed with tupac i don't know why but they just love tupac yeah Um, and i love biggie i love public enemy i like cypress hill i like that harder kind of relentless gritty style of hip-hop and the jazzier side of it i mean i like de la soul but i like jennifer i like the beats of jennifer yeah more than i liked i know yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I didn't. I like my hip hop grimy. I liked it. That's why now I can listen to Heady One, yeah. and I can listen to One Hunter by Fredo, and and love it. And because I love the sparseness, I love the darkness, I love the intimidating nature of hip hop. You know, we didn't go to the kind of more trendy hip hop clubs. You know, we'd go to Westwood jams in yeah. Brixton in the middle of Brixton you know we go to those kinds of places where they weren't playing that stuff oh, they oh, were playing gully hip hop and and until the end of 2019 I had my club night in 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 Hoxton we are lizards and I'd 
I'd play loads of hip hop in my sets. And every now and then, every two or three months, I'd have someone come up and be a bit, why are you playing all this like thuggy stuff and hard stuff? And I'd be like, number one, I'm drunk. Number two, I'm in a club. I mean, I don't want to hear Scroobius Pip. I, you know, I, 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 I want to hear hard stuff. I don't want to hear really intellectual, intricate rap. I want yeah. to hear yeah. fucking anti up and 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 yes. hustling yes. and everything else. Yes. It's like, I don't. That, that, that's da, what I'm da, here for. Da, and every da, now and then, da, da. yeah, boys be boys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, da, da, da. slinging, yeah, slinging da, da. some onyx. Yeah. Oh, what have yeah. you got? Wu Tang, protect your neck. All of that stuff. Exactly. So, what was your kind of route then? Because you you grew up in Essex. So, what in in Harlow, right? We touched upon earlier. Yeah. So, what was yep. your route into hip hop? Because there's loads that people don't seem to know. Because they know you as 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 Nihal, you know, presenter of a voice on the BBC. They don't know that you were a rapper and you were like in in collapsed lung and and yeah. then the 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 big revelation recently has been on your Instagram of pictures of you with most deaf, the one today with Method and Red. And it's like, yeah. so I want to hear about all of this because I, I remember I, I, I knew about a lot of that past, but kind of forgot it until I was talking to my old friend, Stuart Whiffin, who was saying he had you on, he was talking to you on his podcast or had you on and realised that you two used to gig yes. together because he was yes, in Serious right. Problem and Lilo and all these that's other right. things. So Yes, that's right. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that was a that was a revelatory conversation. We yeah, still man. no doubt about it. That's it. Um, <laughs> so I was reminded over the weekend by an old school friend of mine that he and I did a rap for the school talent competition when we were 14 years old. Amazing. And then three years later... I put a track out called Into the Music on a compilation album as MC Crazy A when I was 17 years old in 1988, right? So it's quite interesting because when I first came to Five Live, I'd do these interviews with rappers and I would use certain language and all that. And then you'd get someone tweeting me, some middle-aged bloke going, why are you trying to pretend you know about, you know, you sound ridiculous like Ali G or whatever. You're like thinking, you don't know about me. Yeah. Like, you don't know about me. Like you hear me interviewing Christopher Eccleston or Ricky Gervais or people like that. And it's cool because I, I really admire and respect those people. But don't get it twisted. Don't <laughs> think that, you know, we weren't doing these things back in the 80s and in the 90s. You know, in the 90s, I was Gangstar's publicist. I was most deaf's publicist in the UK, right? I was it's madness, right? Picking up Guru and Primo at the airport, sitting in guru's hotel room the late guru talking to him he was still very upset about a particular hip-hop connection journalist who wrote a terrible review of a gangstar album a few years before and he was still asking me about is he is he around like where, do you, where, where is he these days and, and, I, um, and then went to later and then you know went to later with jules holland uh with gangstar and did that oh, wow. was in la was in LA at the Chateau Marmont with most deaf. I wasn't staying there. They put me in a hotel that could be best described as the crack holiday in uh, <laughs> opposite the Chateau Marmont, oh, uh, the record it. label. And that was when uh, most deaf Nate dog and Farrah Monch did top of the pops from LA. And I was with them oh, wow. uh, to do that for, Oh no. Is that for oh, right? no? Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. For Oh no. So I've had, to, and then I was Elton John's publicist. I worked for my boss, Chris, who's still Elton John's publicist and spent time in, you know, in, in various different venues with Elton John closing the old Wembley stadium, uh, three nights at Madison square gardens, you know, all of these things that happened. And it all, it's, it's interesting because I, I lost a very close friend of mine to COVID in December, end of December, December the 30th. I lost my, one of my best friends, Simon De Winter. And it's made me really think about my history because yeah. with, with him dying, I lost a part of my history. Yeah. Right. And so I just put on Facebook for my old school friends and then they come back with memories of you. And when you get to the stage we are in life, right. Where we've been, you know, successful in what we're doing, you kind of think to yourself, well, how far can you trace that back? And then when my friend Neil, who I was mates at school went, yeah, we did a rap at the school talent competition. <laughs> I even remember some of the rap. 
I'm like, did we? Like I was 14 yeah. and I was performing rap music at 14. So yeah. that shows actually we had the confidence. At 16, I was promoting rap shows in Harlow. At 17, I put a track out. At 22, I signed a record deal, right? So all of these things happened. But the reason I got into hip hop is because it just spoke to me, man. Like I, I, I was listening to a lot of kind of the pop electro of the, of the early 80s, like Soft Cell and The Cure and orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Yeah. And then from that electronic sound, I started listening to a DJ on Capital called Mike Allen, who was playing kind of the hip hop of its day, that electro sound. And I was like, wow, these tracks like Boogie Down Bronx and Jam On It. Amazing sounds, these electronic futuristic sounds. Oh, Mike Allen would do the DJ battles as well, right? Yeah. He'd do the yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And um and then it was Africa Bombata, you know, produced by Arthur Baker, sampling uh, craft work and then yeah. hearing craft work. And then, and then what happened was that I started secondary school and, you know, there were skinheads around, right? So it was almost fashionable to be racist. Like it was fashionable Mad, to shave yeah. your head, yeah, wear all that stuff. <clears throat> and then two years later, it's fashionable to have melanin, right? Because yeah. all these black kids in New York, are rapping and th- and they're the cool kids all of a sudden. So actually being an ethnic minority was a cool thing all of a sudden. I was like, this feels good. Cause yeah. the last shit with the skinheads, that was not cool. <laughs> yeah, like was I was not, not feeling that at all. Yeah. I was not feeling that at all. Whereas this was all different. And um, it just launched me into this, into this world of, of music. It just meant something. I mean, public enemy. Um, I was 18 years old when fight the power came out. Now imagine yeah. for an 18 year old to hear that song and you're just like. And what people don't realize with public enemy is that they kind of clicked in the UK before America could properly get their head around them because they were such yeah. a challenging thing. And it wasn't the straight and Chuck, you know, resisted record deals for ages because he didn't want to just be another Def Jam rapper or whatever else. And he he crafted this thing that was a performance and a message and a movement. And it took America a while to get that. And that's obviously evident with the the opening of It Takes a Nation, that it's it's in Brixton. It's it, it's it's recorded in the UK because they'd instantly kind of clicked with the UK who had grown up potentially on on punk, which had the yes. same heart as hip hop. It was the voice of the yes. voiceless. It was the the underclasses kind of shouting against the powers that be so yes yeah i can completely imagine that in that short period going from the kid that's being not picked on racially abused you know a victim of of racism to now raps here and this is this is speaking up and and it's not a white movement you know and i could freestyle so i could battle people you know they They'd come into be in the playground potentially, and I would just talk about their rubbish shoes and their mum, and they'd do all this stuff. And it was a skill. Like people could just say to me, "Look, there's a there's a stapler. Rap about it," and you yeah. could just rap about it. And suddenly you're like, "Whoa, this is a whole different world." It was so man, so exciting. And I always say that's why I've got hip hop tattooed on me. I've got this graffiti stuff, like hip hop done by the DJ uh, and graffiti artist Colt 45. Yeah. He did it for me. And um, I've got that on my arm because hip hop, I'm not anywhere without hip hop. I wouldn't be on five live. I wouldn't be doing, making the moves. I wouldn't be able to support my family without at the core, what hip hop culture gave me. Yeah. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit more. I mean, we're almost at an hour. So I'll let you go at some point soon, but um, that period at Raucus was massive right and it's kind of historical but it's weird because there was actually a really limited amount of the stuff released that 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 seems to be you know these these classics but it felt like i'm sure oh no was on a lyricist lounge record which was like the most exciting thing to it was the era where pre-internet kind of label samplers were were amazing because it's it, it would allow you to hear oh i've heard of of, of most deaf, but I don't know who any of these other people are. And it would open you up to that and let you see all of that. So, so how was that to be the, w- w- working on all that and, and pushing it out there and trying to get people to listen? It was crazy because most deaf 
turned up in London. And it just so happened that my mate, who not long before won the contract to be Levi's PR company, and they were launching this unbelievable brand called Levi's Engineered, which the innovation was that the seam didn't run down the side. The seam twisted. Twisted around, right? I remember it. Yeah. Twisted around, right? And I, he gave me the full suit, so I'm wearing double denim, right? <laughs> Most deaf gets out of, he gets out of the um, people carrier, right? And he just looks me up and down and goes, where did you get that from? Like, we, I've never seen denim like this in America. Like, where did you? Because they launched it in Europe first. Yeah. And it so began a fantastic relationship that I had with most over a couple of years where we genuinely got to hang out. Like we, yeah. we spent time with each other, talking to each other. The only disc that I ever got from working in the music industry is, a, and what a disc, it's, it's to recognise 60,000 sales of Black on Both Sides. Right? Wow. The fact I did the PR for Black on Both Sides is just a, a moment for me to go, you know, one of the greatest hip hop albums, hundred percent, without a doubt. And he was just everything to me because he had an American swagger, American culture, American lyricism, but European style. Like he dressed impeccably. Like I remember turning up and I was wearing these Prada loafers, right? Which I've still got. These loafers are unbelievable, right? It's sick. And he had a pair of loafers on. I went and he went, oh. That, they're nice shoes, man. Like, what, where are they from? And I went, are oh, they Prada? And I went, oh, well, where are your loafers from? He went, oh, they're bespoke. That was the difference. Like, his <laughs> loafers yeah. were bespoke. They were made for him, right? That's, that's the difference. And he was that guy, you know, and um, he was just a pleasure to be around. He was kind. He was funny. He had no ego around him. And everyone loved him, you know. And the only thing that annoys me is that, he could have been Donald Glover. Yeah. Right? Everyone talks about Childish Gambino. And Don- he was our Donald Glover. Yeah. He was acting. He was making these records that were super credible. I mean, like a month didn't go by without the boss of later with Jules Holland calling me and going, when can we get most Steph on? And it never worked out. Just the diary just never worked out. You know, and most of the time you spent your time as a TV PR, which is what I was, trying to get your bands on later with Jules Holland. Yeah, yeah. It was the only act I ever worked where I could never get him on and all well, they wanted was for him to be on. To be quite honest, that's what you pay a TV PR for in that era. The, there weren't that many other options. It was to get you on no. Jules. Jules yeah. was the one. If you weren't a pop, a big pop thing, yes, exactly. Jules was the yeah. one. That, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. that was, was, yeah. was what you were after. Well, I got Gangstar on there. Yeah. I got Gangstar on there, but I didn't manage to get most on there, even though they wanted him desperately. I never got the chance. It's funny you, you say that about him being a kind of a renaissance man. I remember I was, I was, I was spending some time with Saul Williams at one point, and Saul Williams at that point would was moving into acting a bit and doing some other bits. And he was saying, yeah, and I I think I was asking or someone else was asking if he wants to do it more full time. And he was like, I'd love to, but there's very limited amount of roles for someone who looks like me and has my style and they all go to most deaf. So... (laughs) <laughs> so so there's none left and it's like it's fucking yeah. perfect every role that yeah. most plays is you'd go that would be a Saul Williams role if he if, if, but, if it's, but I wonder if most stuff is due renaissance I don't know if you saw but he just did Virgil Abloh's show for Louis Vuitton no, he just performed see. that right. so someone sent me this and he's still so on point oh my god and he looks exactly the same yeah. Like he looks exactly, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, yeah. back on both sides, 21 years ago. And he looks exactly the same. When I say to you, he just performed for Louis Vuitton for Virgil Abloh, which is yeah. Virgil Abloh, a nod to his own heroes, right? Yeah. Um, in getting most Steph to do it. But um, yeah, it was incredible, right? So that's a whole new era of influencers looking at Virgil and going, who's this kid? Like, who's this rapper, Right. Because if you're perhaps if you're 18, you might not know who most deaf is. It's interesting because there are those those rappers that stand out as being different from the rest seem to be the ones that just vanish for a period, and it's it's likely tied into the reasons they're different from the rest. They don't have the same drives or desire, or you know, the same specific goals of I want to be Jay Z or whatever else. Like Andre 3000 is is an example of that of just. 
being one of the absolute icons who then just goes, I'm just going to go and play my f- f- flute for a few years and just be this mysterious, <laughs> this mysterious guy. But yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I'll start to wrap things up because I want to give you back to your family and, um, and, and your life. What do you feel is ahead? I mean, it's a weird one because I think you've witnessed a lot of changes in your life. In, I mean, in that three-year period from when the skinheads were in f- f- fashion to when rap was in, f- in fashion, shortly after that, jumping forward, say, five to ten years, you've been at least in entertainment, if not in the public eye. And I think we have seen, I mean, I'd like to get your opinion as a British Asian man in the public eye, how how England has changed in recent years, because it does, obviously, Brexit is the obvious guiding point in all of that to demonstrate the change in, in what it is to, to be British, or at least certain people's perceptions of what it is to be British. So where do you feel we are and where do you feel or hope the future lies? I feel that we are at a point where the future is not reactionary and insecure, that the future is positive and optimistic and multicultural and diverse and more accepting. But I feel as though we are in the last throes of the old guard mounting a last stand right yeah by pushing back on progress because they find the future terrifying and they fear that the future does not include them and their views so it is important that we understand people's views but we also explain that the future is one of tolerance and openness and diversity And not because that's in any way charity to gay people or trans people or disabled people or people of colour or indeed other minorities. It's because just the way the world is going is that to understand, to have a powerful, positive, confident society, you have to get the best out of everybody that's in the society. Now, one of my favourite expressions is that if privilege is your normal, then equality feels like oppression. Mm. And this is where we're at now when people are having to realize, certain people are having to realize that just by virtue of the color of your skin or your gender, it's not going to be an automatic guarantee to you having benefits over other people that you like everybody else are going to have to just work hard and contribute to society. Yeah. And if there's one thing that this pandemic has exposed is that the cult of self is a dangerous one in terms of danger, that actually we are all connected to each other. There's an interesting quote from a a Nobel Prize winning geneticist who was recently on a BBC documentary who said that it was poor leadership and the cult of individualism. Hmm. So it's poor leadership and the cult of individualism that has led to so many of the deaths because we're not, you know, we're individuals, of course, but individualism triumphing over everything else is a recipe for social discord, Yeah, right? We're communities and we're families and we have to help each other, right? And my kids, who are brown kids, mixed with white kids and Jewish kids and Chinese kids and black kids. And it's a, it's not a thing, right? It's, it's homophobia is like, why would you do that? That is, it's, it's not a case yeah. of that's wrong. It's a case of why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And that's, that's where you want to get to, right? That's when it gets, what do you mean? Why would you, what do you mean black people were treated worse? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. It's where people get it twisted is that they get, there's people who are anti a lot of the pro- pro- progression in, as an example, the LGBTQ co- a community. Um, and they say, oh, we shouldn't be teaching our kids th- this stuff. It's like, no, we don't have to teach them this. We just have to not teach them it's wrong. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Because it's, it. it's not the natural default. Yeah. That's the bit that is taught. Yes. And in, in, yes. in unfairly, if they're just presented with it, the genuine natural reaction is, oh, cool, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. But I, I didn't do. know that was a thing. Rather than, oh, this is 
terrible. This should be made illegal. It's like, no. Well, I, the thing is, though, I do want to understand. I don't want to call people stupid. Mm-hmm. And I don't automatically want to call people racist. I want to understand what drives them to be able to counter it. You end up becoming the thing that you hate yeah. if you jump all over people the minute they make a mistake or they say something right. Completely, yeah. There's work that has to be done on both sides. I think it has to be safe for someone to go, do you know what, I don't really understand this trans stuff. Can you explain you it? It's it's weird yes. to it feels weird to me, and I know that seems like a negative term. It feels, and this isn't me. This is just someone can, should be allowed to say that. So I go, right. Well, here's the explanation. I understand that rather yes. than how dare you? Do you know yes. what I mean? It should be that safe space as such. Yes, there should be, and I, I think we we're in danger of. There's a brilliant documentary called White Right, right. by Dia Khan, where she travelled to America and interviewed neo-Nazis and she is a Norwegian Muslim Asian woman right and at the end of it wasn't all of them but one of them rang her up three or four months afterwards um, and said I'm leaving this organization this neo-Nazi organization because I'd never met a Muslim before I'd never met a Muslim woman before I just didn't know so I hold out hope that people can change not all of them some of them are just you just have to, and you have to imprison them and you have to use the law and you have to, because they just won't, because they're very dangerous people as well. Yeah. But I do believe that you can, because I, th- I think, yeah, it's difficult otherwise. Right. Listen, I'm going to have to, I am going to have to go. No, cause I think it's dinner time. It's feeding time at the zoo. Go. You go and feed. And, and you and I, you know, you know, you and I could talk for hours. Like Completely. We could just go on Mate, it, right? it's, I'm glad we got to do it now and it's been oh, an absolute thank pleasure. Thank you me. so much for, for your time and thank you as i said i genuinely it's weird in these social media worlds there's so much that i w- w- watch you do and enjoy you do and n- never think to reach out and go oh by the way man you're killing it so just keep up the good work it's enjoyable to see when we can hug i will hug you again my bro g- 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 Always. go and feed and family it up and we'll uh, and we'll catch up soon take care my man You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There you go. That was Nihal. I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed catching up with that dude, as you will have heard. as It's another one. We could have gone on for ages and ages, but obviously I didn't want to keep him from his family any longer. But I definitely think he's another that's going to have to come on again at some point because he's just great to chat with and great to bounce things, bounce things around. And as I mentioned in the intro, if this is your first time tuning in, there's a load of stuff to go and dig into in the back catalogue. Um, even, you know, if you just go back to last week with Asim Chowdhury and Adam Buxton, and the week before with Moose Rock Wonga, it's been a hell of a, a February. Um, and it's continuing on Friday. So I will see you then. Until then, stay safe, stay sexy. Ta-ta.